This is the seventh Sunday after Pentecost. This season, the season of Pentecost, is a season of witness. It goes from Pentecost to the time of Advent or the time of coming. You and I are looking towards the coming of Jesus Christ. We are looking towards his return. But this period in the church calendar is called ordinary time. We are living out our lives here, fulfilling the purposes of Jesus Christ, being his witness to this world, and doing the work that he has called us to do. As we continue to study the word together, we are looking at the book of Acts. We are looking at the church from Pentecost on. We are looking at how the Holy Spirit shaped that church, how it enabled it to reflect the purposes of God, the will of God for the salvation of all people, not an exclusive few, not just one group of people, but everyone from the day of Pentecost on. Today we come to the story of a man who unquestionably had the greatest impact on Christianity. But it's also a story that begins with a very dark past. So turn with me to Acts chapter 9, and we will be studying verses 1 through 19. This is a story of a man who went from being a murderer to a minister. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. 
But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. We know this man more commonly as the Apostle Paul. But before he was the Apostle Paul, he was known as Saul from Tarsus. His story of coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is recorded here by Luke in chapter 9. We will also hear his story in his own words as we look through the scripture today. Saul of Tarsus, speaking before the Jewish people in Acts 22, Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Now, Gamaliel was one of the leading rabbis, one of the leading Pharisee teachers in Israel. To school under him was to have an elite education. Writing to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Few people had a pedigree that was as outstanding as the Apostle Paul. Writing to the Galatians, he said, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. This was Saul of Tarsus, outstanding in every way. As we come to chapter 9, he has obtained letters from the priest, and he is on his way to Damascus. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. In the King James, that sentence that opens chapter 9 reads, And Saul, yet, referring to what he had already been doing, breathing out, threatenings, and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. 
Verse 1 in the Message Bible reads, All this time Saul was breathing down the necks of the master's disciples out for the kill. That same spirit that was in the chief priest and the Pharisees who sentenced Jesus to death, that same spirit of hostility, that same murderous spirit that characterized the Pharisees throughout the ministry of Jesus. When they disputed what he said, especially when they understood his words to mean that he was saying that he was the son of God and they would pick up stones intending to stone him to death. That same spirit was operating in Saul of Tarsus against the followers of Jesus Christ. Years later, speaking to the Roman governor of Syria, Festus, and to King Agrippa, Paul described his perspectives and his actions towards the followers of Jesus Christ. He said, quote, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Note the words, these are Paul's own words. Years later, as he describes the action that he took against the followers of Jesus Christ, I put many in prison. When they, not singular, but plural, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. You see, there's much that's not detailed for us here in Scripture but that we find in Paul's own words. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. And now Paul has extended his efforts. He is on the road to Damascus. Damascus is about 140 miles away from Jerusalem. Paul is really expanding his reach of persecution. Paul is not engaging in mild persecution. He's not engaging in disagreement. He is engaged in violent hostility against the people of God. In Acts chapter 2, after the death of Stephen, when he was stoned to death by the people from the synagogue where he had been debating. We are told that Saul just went wild, devastating the church, entering house after house, dragging men and women off to jail. In his own words to the Galatians, he said, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. 
Again, speaking to Festus and King Agrippa. In Acts 26, the Apostle Paul said, I stormed through their meeting places, bullying them into cursing Jesus. A one-man terror, obsessed with obliterating these people. And then I started on the towns outside of Jerusalem. The man that we know as the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote more books in the New Testament than anyone else, who received greater revelation of who Jesus Christ is than anyone else. This man who so deeply loved Jesus and was willing to pay any price to follow Jesus was a man with a very violent background. He was not understating it when he said, I was a murderer and a blasphemer. Paul's past and who he had been never left his thoughts. And the work of God's grace to transform him was always at the forefront of how he understood himself and how he lived his life. Years later, in his first letter to Timothy, he would write, Even though I was once a blasphemer and persecutor, and a violent man, I was showing mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was showing mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Well, this man with a violent past and violent intentions is about to be stopped as he is going to Damascus. And in verses 3 through 6, we read, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Well, things weren't unfolding as Saul intended for them to unfold. But they were unfolding as God intended for them. Saul did not realize that he had an appointment with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. As he's about to enter the city, the one who is the light of the world causes his light to flash from heaven, and Paul fell to the ground. With double emphasis, the Lord Jesus speaks to him, Saul, Saul, to get his attention, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul responded, who are you, Lord? Now, he was not addressing Jesus as you and I would as Lord. This would be more accurately rendered, who are you, sir? After all, if we were suddenly knocked to the ground and a voice was speaking to us from heaven, 
we would be rather in all too, and we would probably respond with a term of respect like the Apostle Paul did. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Something transforming happened in that moment. The light went on in the heart, the mind, the understanding, the spirit of Saul. And in that moment, the Apostle Paul understood two things. Number one, those he persecuted were right. Jesus Christ was indeed alive. Remember when Stephen, the first of the church, was put to death. We are told that Saul was there, that he was giving approval to the death of Stephen. He was sanctioning Stephen's death. And those who did the actual stoning, they did it under his oversight, laid their clothes at the feet of Saul. And Saul was there when Stephen, as he was being stoned, said these words that Luke records. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. As Saul recounted what happened here and what was said to him, to Festus and Agrippa, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the apostle recalled. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. Saul had just encountered the living Christ. The second thing that he understood was those he persecuted were in fact the body of Christ. We talk about the indivisible nature and identity of Christ and his followers. That Christ and his followers are one and the same. He considers us his body. To do to one is to do to the other. That's his perspective. Remember that Jesus said, if you do anything to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. This is a truth that you and I need to understand much more deeply than what we do. That whatever we do or do not do to others within the body of Christ, we are doing or not doing unto Jesus. This is why we emphasize our times together in prayer. Where Jesus said, I tell you that if two or three of you come together in my name, I am there in the midst of you. When we honor one another by coming together in the name of Jesus, we are honoring him. And he in turn honors us by being with us in prayer, lending the authority of his name to our prayers. But when we choose of our own preference not to come together with God's people, we are also choosing not to come together with Jesus. For the body and Jesus are indivisible. And the Apostle Paul understood this from Jesus. I am Jesus of Nazareth, 
whom you are persecuting. The Apostle Paul thought that he was persecuting heretical followers of a sect by the name of the way. In reality, he was persecuting the Lord Jesus himself. This understanding of the indivisible nature and identity of Christ and his church would stay with the Apostle Paul. It would shape his understanding. It would shape his perspective. It would shape the way that he lived. He would write to the Colossians and say, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. You see, Paul understood that the life that he lived towards Jesus Christ was actually lived out toward his body. That to do or not do to Jesus was to do or not do to his body. And the Apostle Paul, in calling himself a servant of Jesus Christ, knew that he also needed to be an actual, a real, a living, breathing servant of the church. To do to one was to do to the other. Now, the Apostle Paul was not always the Apostle Paul, was he? But there on the road to Damascus, a transformation took place. And Saul of Tarsus gained a new identity. The Lord told Ananias, after his objections, go. A simple word, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. The Apostle Paul recounted this moment to the Jews in Jerusalem after he had gone up there for the Feast of Pentecost many years later. And in his words, he said, a man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all the people of what you have heard and seen. Saul of Tarsus to become the Apostle Paul. This transformation is the epitome of the words that he wrote to the Corinthians many years later. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Look at what happened to the Apostle Paul there as he gained a new identity. First of all, he gained a new understanding as part of that new identity, as part of becoming a new creation. A new understanding. He saw himself to be a, a Pharisee, a preeminent one. He saw his future as part of Judaism. 
He saw his work and role persecuting what he thought was a false religion and obliterating it. But he gained a new understanding about his life. Before I was even born, he wrote to the Galatians, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. Paul also gained as part of becoming a new creation, new values. Paul had credentials that people would love to have. Credentials that he was born into. Education that he was privileged to receive. Status among the Pharisees that few would obtain. But when he encountered Jesus Christ, those values were swept away. He wrote to the Philippians and said, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He also gained a new purpose. He would speak to the elders of Ephesus and would say to them, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others about the good news of the wonderful grace of God. We find many reasons for attributing worth to our lives. We find worth in our jobs. We find worth in our possessions. We find worth in things that we are building, developing, planning for the future. But the Apostle Paul found worth in only one thing, doing what Jesus Christ had called him to do. Again, recounting to Festus and King Agrippa, he would recall the words of Jesus to him and would say, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. These were the words of Jesus to Saul of Tarsus there at Damascus. Years later, in his letter to the Romans, he would write to them of the grace of God on his life. And he would say, the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. And he continued, by the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit of God, 
So from Jerusalem all the way around to Elicium, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Now we often speak of someone having a Damascus Road experience. And what we mean is that they have had a dramatic conversion, that there has been a profound transformation of their lives. Well, while Paul's conversion might be much more dramatic than yours or mine, the work of God in accomplishing the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is no different than the work that he has done in your life and my life. Remember what the Apostle Paul said, that God had chosen him before time to be his servant, to be his mouthpiece, to do his work. And writing to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him when? Before the creation of the world. He chose you. He chose me in him. Before the creation of the world. For what purpose? To be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves in him. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Remember the testimony of Paul to Timothy it was the grace of God by which I am saved. What's your story and my story? It is the same. It is the grace of God. What brought forgiveness for the sins for Saul of Tarsus? What made him worthy of serving the Lord Jesus Christ? It was redemption through the blood of Jesus. It was the grace of God. You see, the same dynamics that were at work and Paul being stopped by Jesus and being made who he was as an apostle, a minister of the gospel, those same dynamics are at work in your salvation and my salvation. Nothing less than God choosing us. Nothing less than he in love predestining us to adoption as his children. Nothing less than his glorious grace. Nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing less than his work and his work alone. I want to ask you this question as we come to the end of our study today. Have you truly encountered Jesus? There is no question more important for any of us to answer than this question. Have I truly encountered Jesus? It is a life or death question whether we will spend eternity in the presence of Jesus or whether we will spend eternity separated from him because we did not accept him. Have you encountered Jesus? 
You have truly encountered Jesus if you know who he is, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is not his first, middle, and last name. Those are three distinct aspects of who he is. He is Lord, meaning that he has authority. He is sovereign. He rules over all. He is Jesus, our substitute Savior, who came and died in our place and paid the penalty of, of our sins that we might be right with God. He is Christ, the anointed one, the one who was raised from the dead, the one who is the fullness of life and is our sufficiency. Writing to the Romans, the Apostle Paul said that if with your mouth you confess that Jesus is Lord, that he's the only way to salvation, that he is the only one who can make me right with God and give me the hope of eternal life, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, he is the Christ, then you will be saved. You have truly encountered Jesus if you know that your identity is in him. And you have truly encountered Jesus if you know that he is the exclusive purpose and worth of your life. The Apostle Paul set that out for the Galatians when he said, Christ's life showed me how, how to move from who I was and to become a man of God. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important to me that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As we go to the Lord in prayer today, I urge you to ask yourself again this question. Have I truly encountered Jesus? Is he the Lord of my life? The supreme and final authority of my life. Do I understand that when I stand before him, any good that I've done will not be merit that will give me credit. My only merit, my only standing will be that Jesus was my perfect substitute who died in my place. Have you made Jesus your own identity? It's not my life any longer. It's him. It's not who I want to be. It's not where I want to go. It's not what I want to be. It is Jesus. I live and I live for him alone. Can you declare today he is the exclusive purpose and worth of my life? I'm not striving to be anything. I do not have a goal of becoming anything except being like Jesus. I live for him. I live for his purposes. Let's bow our heads in prayer. And as we pray today, let's make sure that our hearts have been wide open to who he is.
that we have welcomed him in, in all that he is, to be the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign, the savior, and the complete sufficiency for our lives. Let's pray together. 